This is the Tan Report. I'm your host, Tan Trung. Last week, in the first half of a story about a seminary program at what's been considered one of America's most dangerous prisons, I introduced you to Alex. That's not his real name. He agreed to sit down with me and tell me about serving time at Louisiana State Penitentiary and going through the seminary program there, if I agreed, to not use his real name. This week in part two, I'll tell you how that seminary program helped Alex get closer to a higher power while living through a hellish experience. Alex grew up in a Baptist family. There was a big emphasis on faith in God. But in the 1990s, by the age of 16, he was arrested after a shooting that killed one woman. Another woman was shot, but survived. Alex says he wasn't there when the women were shot, but he knew it had happened. Alex stayed positive as he was being held in a parish jail, awaiting trial. I was hopeful in the parish. And because once, you believed you would get out, you believed you yeah. would be proven that you weren't yeah. and again, involved I, in that crime. Yeah, and again, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was proven. But my attorney did not anticipate the principal doctrine. Under Louisiana statutory law, if someone directly or indirectly assists in the killing of a person, they can be charged as a principal to the crime. Basically, a principal is someone who aids and abets in the commission of a crime. We'd commonly call that person an accomplice. At trial, the surviving victim did not identify Alex as the shooter. But Alex himself never identified the shooter either, who before the murder was someone he considered a friend. Alex refused to tell investigators about what he knew about the shooting. Alex stuck to a street code of no snitching. He could have taken multiple plea deals and testify against his friend, but he didn't. That person, who he now calls his co-conspirator, took the plea deal. I had police officers testify on my behalf. I had sheriff deputies at the prison testify on my behalf that they overheard a conversation between uh, my co-conspirator and his brother, who were the actual two perpetrators of the crime, discuss how they were going to frame me. The jury convicted Alex of second-degree murder, but acquitted him of attempted second-degree murder. When I was convicted, it was a shock, you know, because we were, you know, we were asking, how can you find him, me, guilty of one charge? And by the way, that guilty verdict was a 10-2. It wasn't a... It wasn't unanimous. It wasn't unanimous. It was a 10-2 verdict. Okay. The not guilty was a unanimous verdict on the attempt to murder. And the the, the murder was a 10-2. And my uh, attorney's remarks before sentence was like, how can you find him? How can the jury find him guilty of one charge and not guilty of the other? Apparently, the, the jury was confused about uh, their their duty. Of course, the court, through appeal process, disagreed. By the time Alex was 20, he was starting to serve a life sentence at Louisiana State Penitentiary. Most people refer to it as Angola because that's where it's located in the state. It's also been called the farm because it's 18,000 acres set on an old slave plantation and also because of the field work inmates do at that prison. Alex says his family cut off contact with him. He had forsaken them and God. I went through a, a space, a period of, you know, like, hell with God, hell with 
the Bible, all this is a lie, you know, hell, everything, basically. In his seventh year in Angola, after experiencing and witnessing some of what made the prison so notorious, Alex flipped a mental switch. I was saying to myself that a system has placed me here and this is what they want me to endure. And I'm not going to give that system the pleasure of me suffering the way they want me to suffer. You know, and so I began to work. So I asked myself, you know, the question, how can I not slave in the fields? Well, I use the term slave because it's really a slave field, all the working in the fields. Uh, how can I not uh, work in the fields? Or how can I keep these guards from harassing me? What are the things I need to do to keep all these bad things uh, from happening to me? And the funny thing is, even though I have rejected religion at that point, there's one book in the Bible that I absolutely love, and that's the book of James. Because to me, James is an action book. Everything in James, it tells you to do. You know, keep your mouth closed, guard your tongue, you know. <laughs> It tells you to do. Like actionable items. Yeah. And so I actually put those into practice in my life. But not for a religious person purpose. I put them in practice in my life because I believed at the time that if I said, okay, speak little, listen much. That's a passage in the Bible, or James. Speak little, listen much. And I saw that when I spoke less and sat back and just listened more, to the environment around me, I was able to get around certain obstacles that prisoners would do. For example, you know, I was like, okay, that particular prisoner doesn't like it when you uh, cross cross in front of him. You know, so try to be polite and move maneuver around him. You know, and I started paying attention to my surroundings and observing how to navigate those 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 challenges that inmates were putting forth and that security guards you go to the you go to the gate <laughs> and the security guard is supposed to open the gate but the security guard is standing there for another have you standing there for another five six minutes just to see if you're going to mouth off and so if you mouth off to the security guard which many of inmates would do they'll tell you go back down the walk or write you up or something but i just stand there politely and just wait be patient. James tells you about patience. And so I learned to be patient and wait. You know, I was actually putting those things into practice. And it turned out that it, they were effective. You know, and talk about how to cue. You know, James talk, talks about how to communicate. Uh, and I started communicating uh, better. You know, and I talked to a guard. The guard... As soon as you go to a guard, he's going to blow up on you. And you stand there and you look at him and say, yes, sir. I understand, sir. Uh, but please, if you can, you know, it's like it tones it down. You know, it takes it down another notch for you. And so those things work. And I began to see those things working for me. And I kept, <laughs> I kept applying those James principles 
And my life became a lot easier or bearable while doing time. In the mid-1990s, Burl Kane, the warden of Angola at the time, introduced what he called moral rehabilitation. Kane invited an accredited four-year program at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to come teach at the penitentiary. Now, the concept of having religion in prison wasn't new. Most people who've read the Bible probably know that visiting the imprisoned is mentioned several times in Scripture. It's part of what are known as the Corporal Works of Mercy. Michael Hackett is an Episcopalian deacon in the New Orleans area. He's been visiting prisoners at Angola since 1992. For all intents and purposes, many folks look at Angola as the belly of the beast, the worst of the worst. Why have ministry in a place that people often don't want to think about? My whole area of going in there is based on the baptismal vows. The dignity of every human being. Now, no matter what that human being has done in the past, they still have a dignity inside their soul and inside their body that has needs feeding. And we don't go in there to convert anybody. All we do is we go in there to plant seeds. And the people that we go into and we meet up with, sometimes they don't want to talk to us. Sometimes I've talked to some guys in lockdown in death row that didn't want to talk to us. And I just said, okay, that's fine. I'm here. If you want to talk, uh, just let somebody know and I'll come talk to you. And usually when some of our guys got in lockdown, I know I had one young man that was very faithful in church. I mean, he was there every time the church doors opened. And then I went in one time and he was in lockdown. And I went down into lockdown and talked to him. I said, what's going on? He says, well, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. Y'all can't help me. I'm not, not worth it. Don't worry about me. Don't come back. I said, okay. So I didn't. And then all of a sudden, I was going in for a service about three years later. And here he comes. I said, what are you doing here? I thought you wanted nothing to do with the church. He says, well... I had a lot of time to think, and I am here, and I have changed. I am going to be here anytime we have a service. That young man right now is has been released. He went to probation for parole. He is out. He has a job. He is working a productive part of the community. So, you know. It's, it's the seeds that we plant and not that we, we do anything magical and just let them mull over whatever, whatever they hear, whatever they need to hear. And the main thing that they need to hear is hope, is that, you know, there are other people out there that want to help them. So how often do you minister at Angola? Normally I go up, we do a service once a month on the first Tuesday of the month. This month, I didn't go because I was in Florida relaxing for a while. But uh, our team went up and they did services at, th at the main prison, Camp C and Camp T. And then there were other people that go up and I will go up. If I get a call from a parent or a spouse or something like that, could you go visit so-and-so and so-and-so? -and -so? I can call one of the chaplains and get on the uh, gate pass and go visit with them. 
And when we are in there, if if we're in there doing no matter what we're doing and there is a death, state law requires that a chaplain meet with the prisoners whose family has experienced a death and go work with them. At Angola, death in many ways is expected. The average sentence at the penitentiary is 90 years. Almost 85% of the inmates who enter Angola will never be back on the outside. Most of them will age and die at the prison. There's hospice at Angola and a cemetery where life sentences will be completed. Alex eventually came to work with inmates in hospice, but before that, he would enroll in the seminary program the warden had invited into the prison. When I went to Angola, I couldn't read beyond a fifth grade. And so, and my conversation was probably that of a fifth grade as well. And so I purposely, I used to get a book and read aloud, practicing, articulating my words and reading and reading and reading and reading and reading. And then there was a lady named Dorothy Young White. She doesn't, I know she's not gonna mind me saying her name because she was a very big, she was really instrumental in my life in Angola. She used to always walk, she was the education coordinator. She used to walk up and down the walk and she used to always say, stay focused, stay focused. And so one day she saw me, she asked me uh, how old I was. And I was like, at this time I was probably like 23. She said, you have your GED? I said, no ma'am. She said, look, get you in school. Now I was just still running around the prison. And she said, look, get you in school get your GED, and I'm going to give you a job. And so she held true to her word. She, I went to went her school, and I started, I started off uh, at the fifth grade level, worked my way through, got my GED. She gave me a job working for her as a clerk. And then when the seminary opened up, she being the education coordinator, she was like, you should go to the seminary. And I was like, oh, don't know about that. You know, I'm not sure about that. But make a long story short, through meeting the Episcopalians and, you know, having these transformative life conversations, and I eventually took Miss White's uh, suggestion and went to the seminary. And I'm glad I did. Although Alex was raised in the Baptist faith, he found himself attending the Episcopalian services. And the reason I always went to the Episcopalian because they were the smallest of all. So they had Pentecostals, Baptists, Church of Christ, and another Pentecostal group. They used to be there with the, and also the Episcopalian. Episcopalians came first Tuesday of every month. I chose to go to the Episcopal service because, it, one, it was the smallest. And two, it was quiet. All the other service, they planned a bunch of... Uh, music, they're doing a lot of singing, and they're trying to get you involved in the service. Whereas the Episcopal service, uh, the the men and women came in and they performed the service out of a book. They didn't mess with you. You could sit at the back. You could sit at the back of the chapel, and they would not mess with you, <laughs> right? And so that was like, yeah, this is, this is the service to go to. Alex kept coming back to those services. 
I met this young lady. She approached me, uh, Cindy Ovier. She was a deacon. And I, she walked up to me. She said, hey, she said, I haven't been seeing you. How are you doing? And I, you know, I told her I was all right and stuff, you know. Because I, you know, wasn't, you know, 10, don't 10. And I'll never forget, she didn't ask me why I hadn't been back to the service. She didn't, you know, she didn't try to ask me, you know, anything about me. She didn't want to know it. The only thing she did was look at me and smile and say, well, I want you to know we love you and we hope to see you again. And I said, I'm going to come back. <laughs> you know, just, that just fell out my mouth, right? I was like, I'm going to come back because she was so nice. And she said, well, we'll be here Saturday for Bible study. She said, we'll be here Saturday. You, if you want to, you can come, come to our Bible study. I said, okay, I'll be there. And me just being a person of my word, I went that Saturday. And it, that Saturday changed my life because uh, my father Barnwell, who was there at the time, I'll never forget, he, we were reading out of this book that he had uh, written. Uh, it's called, it was part of what they call a doc program. And, and there was a passage in Genesis, and I've read Genesis a million times, grew up reading Genesis and hearing all the stories of Genesis. But there's a passage in Genesis that says, and God looked at all his creation and said it was good. And I'll never forget Father Bornwell looked at me and he said, Do you know that you're good? And but it was the way that he said it that caused my mind to pause on the on those words and to really reflect on those words when I went back to the dawn. You know, because I had never Maybe maybe in the past, in my past, you know, somewhere, maybe that was told to me. I can't recall it, but or asked to me. I can't recall it. But the way he asked me that and the way he stated it, it just jarred me for some reason. And so I went back to my dorm and I thought about that. And before I left, you know, they asked me would I come back, you know. I said, yeah, so... What was I, your answer? What did you come up with? When he asked that question, I don't think I ever answered him. I don't, I don't remember answering him. I think that that was more of a, a reflective question that he was just asking, you know? Did you uh, believe you were good? At the time, I believed I was good. But I didn't know I was good. I always used to tell myself uh, that I was a good person. I used to always tell myself that I was destined to be better than what uh, society of my family had said I would be. Because I, you know, my grand when I was growing up, my grandmother told me I was gonna I'd end up in debt in jail anyway. So uh, I remember my grand my, my grandparents would tell me that I. They had disowned me in my face, like, you know, strip me of the, my last name, their last name for me while I was in their presence. You're, you're not us, blah, 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 you know. So 
uh, so I would always had this concept of myself being good, but knowing it is something totally different, right? Really, really knowing it within was something totally different. So no, I probably didn't have that that sense of me at that point. So how life. did that Saturday change your life then? Uh, yeah, so that Saturday uh, just changed the total trajectory of my 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 real thinking. I really I started going to the service. And maybe I and maybe I was uh, trying to uh, seek some spirituality. I don't know, uh, but I started going. I told myself I am not going back to the Baptist church. <laughs> that was totally out the question, and I meant that. And so I started going to the Episcopal service, and I used to sit at the very back of the Episcopal service and pay attention to the actual service. I started watching what they were doing and why they was doing it. Still, yeah, and I'm a Episcopalian today. Some of it still kind of foreign to me, but the portion that I that I loved the most and loved then within the liturgy, there's a song called "Holy, Holy, Holy." Uh, I love that song. I love that hymn. It's a hymn. I love that hymn to this day. I love it because that was I used to hear. When we were in when we were uh, in Angola, we used, to, we used to sing it, but it it was the procession of receiving the Eucharist that really got me, because in the procession you had everybody in one line going up to get the Eucharist. You had the the, the men and women who came in from the street to have service with us. They were doctors, lawyers teachers, deacons, and even just regular lay people in that line. Then you had your murderers, your rapists, your robbers in that line. You had your whites, your blacks, your Latinos, and Asians in that line. Everybody was singly in that line going up to do one thing, one purpose. And it didn't matter at that moment. It didn't matter what your ethnicity was, what you were locked up for, what your career status was. That's how I saw it when I used to watch that procession. Alex went on to graduate from the prison seminary program and became a minister. And for me, once I identified who I was and became comfortable with who I was, life not saying that life became easier, but it became less stressful. And so every morning, and even today, even today, I wake up saying, I know who I am. I know what I want in life. I know where I want to go. And I take one step each day toward whatever it is that I'm choosing to reach for. And that's what I did in jail. It was not saying it was easy. It was not easy. I mean, there were days, obviously, you wake up and you doubt. And because I, I had a job in, in the prison where I had the honor of sitting next to people that were dying. And some of these people I knew. Hospice. Hospice program. I wasn't involved in the hospice program. I was an inmate minister. But it, it serves the same purpose, whether you're, in, whether you're a hospice person 
or inmate minister, you have the opportunity to go into the wards as an inmate minister to sit with the sick, to pray with them and talk with them. You know. And that was you, you were the inmate minister. Yeah, I was the inmate minister. And so and some of these people I knew, you know, and I would sit there and, and, and be like, man, you know, I know this person. Would this be, you know, could this be me? And, you know, you walk away from that, and that's the question you can, you ask yourself. You know, this person is dying, uh, has died, because we had funerals at the prison, too. And you'd be like, could that be me? So, obviously, there are... Could that be me in the sense of me staying here the rest of my life to the point that I die, die in yeah. prison? Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? And so that's jarring, right? So that's a struggle, you know, that you have to confront, you know? But again, once you know who you are, it becomes a struggle that you can win because who you are, for me, who you are is has a purpose. If you don't have a purpose in your life, the Bible, the Bible clearly states people without a vision, they perish. In some translations, it says purpose. Without a purpose, you perish. Depending on your translation, but it's the same thing. Without that purpose, that's what you do. You die. I found a purpose greater than me to live for. And so even though I woke up some days doubting, I will remember, what are you really doing this for? Are you really doing it just to get out or are you doing it because you find value in it you find significance in it you know these are the questions that I would ask I would talk to myself with have these conversations with myself and that helped me make those progressive steps each day and even to this day Alex could have went on to get his masters of divinity through the program but more than 25 years after entering Angola, he was about to walk out. In June of 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that juveniles convicted of murder cannot be subject to a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. Remember, Alex was a juvenile when he was arrested for murder. In those first few years in Angola, Alex says he stayed hopeful that one day he would be free. And it seemed that hope was worth holding on to. And so the state of Louisiana then enacts the law to comply with the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that states a juvenile offender who's convicted and sentenced to life could be eligible for parole consideration. That didn't mean that you would get parole. Just be considered for parole after after serving 25 years of incarceration. So since I had already served 28 years, six months, and three days, I was immediately eligible for parole consideration. And based upon my uh, conduct record at the prison, and based upon the fact that I had completed a lot of rehabilitative, I had went through a lot of rehabilitative programs, thankfully, the parole board gave me that opportunity and released me. And I'm, you know, I'm grateful for that. You know, because I must say, that, you know, the board takes into consideration everything about a person. They just don't release anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, yeah, they gave me the opportunity. What was that moment like when you realized that Pure it jubilation. was possible? 
It's pure jubilation. I'll never forget the uh, chairman of the board looked at me. He said, I better not see you in front of me again. I said, don't worry, you won't. <laughs> yeah, it was pure jubilation. Alex has been a free man for five years now. A lot of folks in life try to find hope, whatever they're going through, and they, they struggle with it. They struggle to kind of get to that point where they, there's a payoff, or I knew my faith would reward me for whatever it is I went through. I'm wondering for you, what kept you going through those 28 years? Because that's a long time to wait and not have a lot of results. So it wasn't about me getting out. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get in, I didn't get into religion to get out of jail. You know, I got it, I got into religion because at the end of the day, I've, I've, I believed and believe in Christ, right? And I told myself, you know, whether I'm in jail or out of jail, that I wanted to be the best individual that I could be, you know, I knew I was not the worst that society has said me to be. I knew that I was not the bad person that my family said I was. And I just wanted to be the best person that I could be. It wasn't about me getting out. So I never really thought I would or would not get out. So for me, it was more like, you know, here's my faith. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to, to be a servant and not dwell upon me actually leaving jail. If you know, that, that, I know that's kind of crazy, but it's not crazy. But I think that, <laughs> and even what you told me before that you had friends that committed suicide yeah. in Angola, and some would say that. It takes a lot of faith and, and hope to even avoid that, even if you weren't thinking about getting out of prison. I mean, how do you get to the point where you're keeping because your it, sanity? It, it, takes, it takes, because it, it boils down to you identifying who, I believe, who you are. Once you know who you are, <laughs> my, my uh, professor, Dr. Robinson, he used to, he used to always say, once you know who you are, you know whose you are. And you are in Christ. That's whose you are. Christ Jesus. Deacon Hackett, who we heard from earlier, never crossed paths with Alex during his years of ministry at Angola. But the two men know each other well now. I did not meet him until he was released. Oh, but okay. since he has been released, he has done a number of uh, fantastic things in his life and taken it to another level. When he was released, he was working with a free person that had a lawn service. And that lawn service, well, all he did was he took former incarcerated persons that wanted to work and taught them the lawn service. Although Alex, prior to being released, had every one of the licenses in the state for lawn service and that type of that type of work, and I believe he was also a paralegal on the inside. He had a lot of credentials coming out. He had a lot of go power, 
he wanted to go forward. He wanted to do right. He wanted to do the best that he could for himself. So part of my business, I look for people who are less fortunate. When I say less fortunate, I look for homeless people. I look for drug addicts. I intentionally seek these people out because these people have been thought of as castaways. They have been forgotten by the vast of society, the vast of our community. And I actually, I look for the LGBT community intentionally and say, look, I can help put some money in your pocket if you want to come work with me for the day or you want to come work for me for a week. You know, look, won't you uh, go open up your bank account? Like, I, I'll take you over here to help you get on Medicaid. You need some Medicare? I can take you over here to help you get on, go take you to Crescent Care, help you get Medicare. I've done those things. So that's how my faith plays out. That's why I feel like I don't have to go back to get a Master Divinity degree to be a pulpit preacher. Ministry is in the street. Ministry is where Jesus was at in the street, and that's what I do. Deacon Hackett believes the seminary program Burl Kane introduced to Angola back in the 90s has changed lives inside and outside of those prison walls. Now, what I have seen since I have been at Angola, when we first started going in and doing services there, we would ask for somebody to volunteer to read the lessons. First of all, it was very difficult for anybody to volunteer because prison is like the military. You don't volunteer. (laughs) You just don't volunteer. When we did get somebody to volunteer, it was like pulling teeth for them to be able to read it. At present, with the educational level being raised up through the seminary and through the other educational efforts, we go in and they are eager to volunteer, to read, to express that, hey, they can do this now. Uh, The reading is, you would think you were in the cathedral with the readers that are doing it all the time. The reading level is just fantastic compared to what it was. I mean, it's like up 50%. The one thing that I have seen, and Angola has brought the violence level down, the whole level of violence. And this is something that Burrow Kane brought into Angola and got it started there. And he is now going, aside from being the commissioner of prisons in Mississippi, he is now going to other states and recommending and talking to the governors and to the wardens about starting seminaries in their prison. And I'm doing the same thing. Prisons, and the people locked up in them, often don't get much attention until maybe there's a riot or someone escapes. During Louisiana's latest election season, there were political ads from various candidates talking about how they would crack down on offenders, which usually means locking them up for life. Rehabilitation and criminal justice reform can often seem like academic discussions or possibly campaign issues. What Deacon Hackett has seen in his decades of work at prisons and jails is more concrete. If you were to have the ear of those politicians or those candidates to say, you know, we we need to not have a revolving door for the criminal justice system, that somebody that goes into prison shouldn't be able to come back out. But obviously you've seen a different side like, what would you tell those politicians who say we need to stop the revolving door for the prison system? I don't think that they believe that. I believe that they are saying that because there are people out there that that's what turns them on to their vote. 
period. I agree. There are some people that need to be in prison. There are some people that are out there in the free world that should be in prison. <laughs> but, uh, you know, their time has not come. And, uh, you know, their day will come. I said earlier in this podcast that the arc of Alex's life, from when he was a juvenile offender to now a former inmate of Angola, has been marked by crucial choices. They include the choice not to snitch. He chose not to accept the plea bargain. And once in prison, he chose to find his faith. Now, you don't have to believe in God or believe in second chances for someone like Alex. But it's hard to deny that his level of faith is quite unbelievable. Did faith save your life in, in prison, do you think? Am I overstating that? No, you're not. Because faith gave me a guiding purpose. Before then, I didn't have anything. I probably would have uh, went down the road that I saw a lot of people go down if I didn't have faith, if I didn't have belief. Yeah, so I could say it saved my life. In New Orleans, I'm Ton Trung for WWL Radio.